So if you, ha- if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, uh, we've been working our way through a series. Um, the series is called Rooted, and it's kind of figuring out uh, how, how to live a rooted life in the middle of like just a busy, nonstop culture. Like, how do you stay rooted? I mean, we all know that like this life, the culture that we're in is just constantly moving. Like just one thing after another, it's so easy to fill your life with stuff, right? It's not just that it's always moving, it seems like it's always changing. Like culture is rapidly changing, so how do we as followers of Jesus, root ourselves in such a way that, that we stay true to who he is and what he calls us to. And so we've, as we've walked through this series, you know, we talked about being rooted in Jesus and the grace and the grit that comes with that. We've, we've talked about being anchored in the word of God and how it makes you like a tree by a river of water. We've, we've talked about how to be driven by the vision of who God is, letting God be God. And then last week, we kind of looked at what it means to live a life that's leveraged to serve. How fun was that, by the way? How fun was that to go to Kroger last week and just to like clear the shelves? It was such a cool experience. We filled up U-Haul trucks and we blessed the Martha O'Brien Center and stocked their pantry in Napier. And you know, we just kind of lived out. This is what it looks like to live a life that's leveraged to serve. And today, we're gonna look at this idea of, of a life that is surrendered. To Jesus, and we're going to unpack some of what that means. As I was, as I was thinking about this um, Thursday, I was trying to trying to put together like what, what does this mean to live a life surrendered? What is happening in Mark chapter eight? And as I was looking at Mark chapter eight, I had this memory of a story that my wife and I share regularly with each other. So we were um, I just we just had our first son. This was 2010, so about nine years ago. Uh, our, our first son had been born, and my wife's brother, my brother-in-law, was he was going to be traveling. We, we lived in Vancouver, British Columbia. He lived in Florida, so like opposite corners of the continent, and he was traveling to go be a commercial fisherman in Alaska, but he was going to pass through Seattle, which is about three hours from where we live, so we said, hey, let's figure out a way to meet up and spend some time together, so... I got, um, I got online, I found a hotel, read reviews, you know, the reviews are okay, but the pictures looked good of the hotel, so I booked the hotel. And, uh, you know, this was, we lived in Canada, and we couldn't use our phone in the States, and we were driving down to Seattle, and he got there before we did, and had no way of reaching us, and so he was supposed to meet us at the hotel. Well, we get there, and I remember pulling in the parking lot with, with my wife, Amy, and my oldest son, Elijah, who wasn't even one yet, and I noticed that uh, Amy's brother uh, is standing outside the hotel. He's not in, in the room. I'm like, that's kind of weird. Why is he waiting outside? So we park, and my wife's brother walks over to our car. And here's what you need to know about John, my brother-in-law. He, he's, he's, he's a man of few words. He, he doesn't mince words. He says it like it is. And he walks up to Amy's uh, window, and she rolls down the window. And she goes, hey, what's wrong? And he goes, well... Let's just say this place ain't like the pictures. And that's like all, all he has to say. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what that means. So I'm like, okay, let's go inside. So I get out of the car and I walk in. And let me just say, it wasn't like the pictures. You know, like I walk into the lobby. The first thing I notice is the heat that hits me. The AC was broken in the hotel and it was the middle of summer in Seattle. And it was like, so it was just like heat. And I walk in, it's so hot. And then after the heat was the smell. <laughs> The smell coming out of this hotel lobby. And then I walk in and like I start looking around and there's literally like cigarette burns in the carpet, stains on the furniture. And the guy starts taking me to our room and there's like, no joke, people sleeping in the hallway on the way to the room. I'm like, this ain't like the pictures, you know? Like, I, don't, I don't know what to do. So we ended up leaving, getting a new hotel. But it's just become this like joke between Amy, my wife and I that anytime something doesn't go quite the way we thought it would, we look at each other and we're like, this ain't like the pictures, you know? As we've played that out over the years, I've realized that in a lot of ways, that memory, that story, it was like a microcosm of much of our human experience, right? There's all these places where we have the picture 
And then we step into it and we get, and man, it's not like the pictures. For some of you, it was like, man, you had this picture of what life was gonna be like when you finally got to college. And it was like, oh, it's gonna be amazing. I'm gonna be able to stay up super late and still do good in school and like not be fully awake, you know? And then, and then you get to college, oh, this ain't like the pictures. For some, it's like you graduate college and it's the dream of the new job and what it's gonna be like to have your first real job. And then you get there and it ain't like the pictures. For some, it's getting married. It's having your first kid. It's, it's whatever. It's like, man, there's this thing. And maybe this one might be too close to home for some of you. For some of you, it's quite literally, it ain't like the pictures where you've seen the picture of the person that you met on the online dating app, you know, and then you show up and it's like, oh, this ain't like the pictures. Like, we all know what this feels like to have a picture and then to have the experience not line up. And, and, and here's what I wonder. I wonder, I wonder for how many of us this has been our experience of, of following Jesus. Where, where man, we, we're given a picture of Christianity and then we step into it. You know, some of us have been lured into Christianity by the Instagram version of the gospel. You know what I mean here? It's like, man, hey, give your life to Jesus. And it's just like, it's, it's amazing sunrise devotionals every day, golden hour pictures of your Bible open and a cup of coffee and the perfect journal with the pen next to it. Hashtag, I love the Lord, you know, whatever it is. You know, it's like, we've said, oh, that's it, man. I want that every morning. Or we buy into this, this image, the Instagram image of, man, if I become a Christian, I'll be surrounded by a community of always smiling, happy people that everything goes well and everybody treats each other well. Whatever that image is, we get lured into it. And then we come and we go, whoa. This ain't like the picture. Like, you sign up, you get in, you give your life to Jesus, you get baptized, and then, and then people still hurt you. And heartbreak still happens. Somebody still betrays you. Maybe you give your life to Jesus and you think that's gonna be the thing that starts to change your family, but your family doesn't change. In fact, they kind of ostracize you or make fun of you because you take your faith so seriously. Or you give your life to Jesus and, and the paycheck doesn't get any bigger. The bank account doesn't swell. You know, you're still living paycheck to paycheck or you still lose the job. And it's like, man, we, we, Jesus, this ain't like the picture. Like, what is happening here when that happens? Is, is, Jesus, is Jesus some kind of con artist, the, the, a bait and switch master? He puts the bait of a good picture and then you step into it and he switches it out for something different. Is that what's happening here? You know, I think you don't have to look much further than the words of Jesus himself to understand what's happening when, when you feel like it ain't quite like the picture. So we're going to look in Mark chapter 8. And in Mark chapter 8, the disciples themselves, they find themselves in what feels like the ultimate, it ain't like the picture moment. And I'm going to kind of set this up. We're going to start in verse 30, but before we read, I want to tell you kind of what's just unfolded here. Uh, Jesus... Uh, has taken his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi, which we'll talk more about here in just a minute. And while they're there, he looks at his disciples and he says, hey, who does everybody say that I am? And then he says, actually, more importantly, who do you say that I am? He looks them in the eye. Who do you say that I am? This is a significant moment in the story of Jesus because it's the first time in any of the gospels that it's publicly proclaimed that Jesus is something significant. Peter looks at him and says, Jesus, I believe you are the Messiah. You're the Christ, the anointed one. You're the, you're the one that Israel has been waiting on. You're the hope of the world. That's what he's saying when he says, you're the Messiah. And, and you gotta wonder, how did Peter know to make that claim about Jesus? 
How did he know? Well, we kind of get a glimpse of this in Matthew chapter 11. There's this moment where, where Jesus is, is serving and ministering and somebody shows up and they say, hey, Jesus, somebody sent us to find out if you're the one that we're supposed to be expecting. In other words, Jesus, somebody sent us to find out, are you the promised Messiah? And I love what Jesus answers in Matthew 11. He says, hey, I want you to go to tell them. Tell them what you've seen. Tell them the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the lame are walking. Tell them the leopards are being cleansed, the dead are being raised, good news is being preached to those on the margins, to the poor. He says, go and tell them what you've seen. In other words, this is the picture of what the Messiah looks like. And Peter has had a front row seat. He's been watching Jesus everywhere he goes, doing miraculous things. And Peter's going, wow, this, this is the picture. It's, it's better than the picture I imagine. Jesus is more than I ever imagined. Jesus, you are the Messiah. He's seen the picture. And so when Jesus says, who am I? He says, man, I've seen that before. You are the Messiah. But then Jesus, Jesus responds in a way that the disciples probably weren't expecting. Look in verse 30, chapter eight. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Wow, some harsh language from Jesus. He said, you do not have in mind, listen to this, the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Remember those two concerns. We're going to come back to that. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple, in other words, whoever wants to come after me, whoever wants to walk in my ways, be apprenticed to my way of life. He says, whoever wants to do that must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. These are the words of Jesus out of Mark chapter 8. Now, now there's some heavy words, some harsh words, some hard words to understand. But let me tell you the, the good thing about this. Okay, And this is good news about Jesus. Hear me on this. Jesus will never bait and switch you. He's not a con artist. In fact, Jesus always wants to paint as clear a picture as he can. And what he says here to his disciples is basically, listen, you've seen the picture and it's better than you ever imagined, but you need to understand the path to get to that picture will not be anything you would ever expect. He said, man, the picture's good, but the path, the path may not be what you're expecting. He says, if you want to fully step into the picture, if you want to fully step into the picture, then you have to deny yourself and take up your cross. Now, these are, these are hard phrases for us to fully understand. Like, man, what is, deny yourself, take up your cross? Like, what is that? I mean, let's be honest. In, in American Christianity, we have airbrushed and Instagrammed the cross so much until it feels like it's just this cutesy thing that tags along with the Christian faith. It's this thing that you hang on your wall or wear around your neck or get on a t-shirt or a mug. But, We've got to understand the cross. The cross was an instrument that was bent on pain. It was the purpose of it. It was bent on suffering and humiliation 
and ultimately death. And Jesus looks at them, he says, hey, if you wanna follow me, he says, you're gonna have to learn to say no to yourself and take up suffering. You know, there's really not a more countercultural message in our day and age. You know, our, our day and age says, hey, indulge yourself. Be true to yourself. Do what you want to do. You deserve it. Our culture tells us over and over again that myself, that myself should be at the center of my existence. I am trained to think that I'm at the center. In fact, our culture has gone so far that if you deny yourself or, or, or you say no to yourself and do something that doesn't feel true to yourself, then somehow you're being inauthentic and disingenuous. And Jesus says, no, I want you to deny yourself and take up your cross. Now, what, is that, what does that look like? What does it mean? You know, for centuries, there have been many different groups of Christians who have interpreted this to mean that we should somehow seek out suffering or even inflict suffering on ourselves. It's called you know, radical asceticism, this idea that you would just inflict pain on yourself. But I want you to notice, Jesus does not say, go look for suffering and pain. He never says that. He doesn't say seek suffering. Jesus says what? Seek the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God. That is what we seek. We seek to follow Jesus, not to follow suffering for suffering's sake. He says, seek out the kingdom. But he says, listen, but as you seek that out, as you follow me into this picture, you've got to understand what it sometimes is going to feel like and what it's going to be like. So what he's describing here, we kind of have two clues from this text is what Jesus is actually hinting at when he says, deny yourself and take up your cross. The first clue is what I highlighted in the text where he distinguishes between human concerns and the concerns of God. The other thing, the other clue that we get is kind of the place that they are when Jesus says these things. They're in Caesarea Philippi. We're going to start right there. Okay, here's what you need to know about Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was first, you need to know, it was intentional for Jesus for them to be there. It was a 27-mile walk from Capernaum. Okay, so they started in Capernaum, they go to Bethsaida, which is on the way, and then they go way out of the way. It's not towards Jerusalem, it's away from the center of, uh, of Israelite life, and he goes, he goes all the way up 27 miles of walking up to Caesarea Philippi. Why in the world did he go there? Well, here's what you need to know. Caesarea Philippi was, was the center for several things. One, it was, a, it was known as being a, a center of military might for the Roman Empire. They had, they had military outposts there in Caesarea Philippi. But it wasn't just a center of military might, it was also a place of sensual indulgence. I want you to imagine it was like the, the Las Vegas or, or maybe just the Broadway of downtown Nashville, whichever one you wanna go with. You know, it was this place where people went to indulge their own sensual cravings. But it wasn't just a military might or, or a place of sensual indulgence, it was a place of great wealth. It was also a place of, uh, considered to be of great spiritual powers. There was a temple to the God of Pan that was built there. There was this place, and you've probably heard us talk about this before, there was this place in Caesarea Philippi where they believed that the, 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 the gods of the underworld literally came into this world. It was called the Gate of Hades. You know, Jesus references that in this story in the other Gospels. And so all of these things are what Caesarea Philippi was, was known for. And Jesus is saying, listen, there are forces in this world. There are forces in this world that of power, that of money and wealth, that of sex and indulgence and comfort 
and, 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 and spiritualism, the pursuit of other, of other religions. He says, there are these forces at work in the world and they're gonna try to convince you that they hold the secret to the good life. Get your hands on enough power and things will be good. Get your hands on enough money and things will be good. Find yourself sexually, be liberated sexually and things will be good. This is, this is the message that the world is constantly throwing at us and it's not new to our generation. It was going on then as well. And what Jesus says is, hey, there is a part of you that is gonna be tempted to believe that it's true. There's a part of every one of us that will be tempted to believe that one of those things holds the secret to the good life. This is what we see happening in Peter. This is why Peter gets so frustrated with Jesus. You see, Peter saw the picture of the Messiah, but there was another picture in his mind. There they are in Caesarea Philippi, a center for Roman power and military might. The Roman Empire had its foot on the Israelite people, and what Peter wanted more than anything was for the Messiah to come in, for Jesus to come in as a military king and put his foot on the throat of the Roman Empire to squash them. And then he says, no, I'm about to go die. He says, Peter, you, you gotta understand that power is not gonna hold the secret to the good life. There was a battle raging in Peter, and there is a battle raging in every single one of us. We all have the battle. And, and if you're not aware of it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna draw your attention to it real quick. It's like, how many of us have set New Year's resolutions that we didn't keep? <laughs> how many of us started this week, maybe? We started, you know, last Sunday, we're like, man, this week, I'm gonna go to the gym every morning. <laughs> and then we don't do it. Or we go, man, this week, uh, I'm, I'm not gonna eat that food that gives me gas and makes me feel bad. You know, it's like, and then we do it. We eat the food, makes us feel terrible. Or we go, man, this week, I'm not gonna let that person treat me that way. And then we do it. This week, I'm gonna spend more time in my Bible. And then we don't. I mean, all of us understand this. I know. <laughs> it's part of the human experience. There's this battle raging inside of us. And what Jesus says, he says, listen, there are two parts to you. There are two parts to you. And this is what he's talking about when he looks at Peter and he says, you don't have in mind the concerns of God. You have in mind the concerns of human, of humanity. You see, there's two parts in every single one of us. The truest part of you, please hear me on this. The truest part of who you are is that you were made in the image of God Almighty. Do you know that? Do you know that you have the imprint of the divine on your life? He made you in his image. Ephesians 4 will tell us that we have a measure of God in us. You have a measure of God in you. And that is the core truth about who we are, but there is this other truth about us, this other self. The Bible refers to it as the sinful nature or the flesh or the false self. And it is like a disease that seeks to eat away at our souls. And sometimes that false self, that sinful self, that fleshly nature gets so, such a tight grip or even intertwined with the true nature of who we are that the moment we try to remove it, it feels like I'm losing my identity. It feels like I'm losing myself. Jesus says, listen, you were made you were made in the image of the... Galatians 5 is full of this language. Galatians chapter 5 says, listen, there's the sinful nature and there's the fruit of the Spirit, and they are at war with each other, not at peace. He says the acts of the sinful nature, 
It's selfishness, it's sexual immorality, it's greed, it's jealousy, it's lying, it's deceit. All of these things are the the work of the sinful nature. He says, but man, the fruit of the Spirit is what you were made for. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness. All of these wonderful pictures that we long for in our lives because you were made for it. But there's a battle inside of us. And the moment we have to let go of the sinful or the flesh or whatever it is, it, fe- it will feel like, it will feel like you're losing your true self. And here's the reality is that Jesus looks at us and he says, because both of these selves feel like you, it is going to be impossible for you to always discern on your own which one is the real you. He says, you can't do it. It'll feel like it's moving around on you. In the moment you find yourself in the face of a temptation, you begin to go, well, maybe that's, maybe that's not so wrong. Maybe that's part of just who I am. Maybe that's just the way I was made. Guys, here's the thing. This, this, this idea of, man, that's just the way I am. You know, I love personality tests. Like, they're really helpful. You know, the Enneagram is really helpful, right? But the moment, I, like, when I hear people go, well, I just can't help it, I'm a four. You know, that's just what fours do. <laughs> right? I can't help it, I'm an eight. That's just how eights. God, no, y- your faults... They're not part of you. They're not part of who you are. It is part of the false self that Jesus seeks to rip away from you so that the real you, the image of God in you, can shine bright, can shine clean and true as a light to the people around you. But it will feel like death. It will feel like death because it feels like you're losing a part of yourself. How do we discern which one is the true me, which one is the false me? And the answer is we need a guide. We need someone to lead us, to show us, hey, this is what you were meant for. This is not what you were meant for. This is what you were meant for. This is not. Jesus is the guide. This is why Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. Psalm 139, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, it says, man, oh Lord, you have searched me. You know me. Man, you know when I sit. You know when I rise. You you discern my going out and my coming in. Lord, before a word is on my mouth, you know it completely. Before I think anything, you're familiar with all of my ways, Lord. The Lord knows you better than you know yourself. He does. And he's good. And he longs to lead you into truth to be the one you were meant to be. Jesus says, follow me. I will show you your false self and it will be your job to deny your false self, to take up your cross so that the false self can be crucified and the image of God can shine bright in you. This is what Jesus is inviting. He says, listen, if you seek to save your life, you're gonna save all the wrong things and you'll lose it. Man, if you will give up your life, if you'll surrender yourself to me as the guide, you'll find your life. Now, here's the thing. Our culture, it just it doesn't know what to do. We struggle to know what this looks like. But the thing is, when we see it, we really celebrate it. This idea of denying yourself, we go, oh, that's, oh, now why would you ever deny yourself? Live for yourself. But then when we see it, we go, oh, wow. Hey, here's an example. I'll give you several examples. You know, how many of us are are, are fans of the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Fans of Marvel in the room. Yeah, it's like, Man, our culture loves Marvel. You know, the superheroes. And there's like, what, 20, how many, 23 films? I mean, it's crazy. And all of them make a fortune in the, in the theaters. It's like, why in the world does our culture love Marvel so much? Because it's this picture of these heroes with great strength who are willing to do what? Lay themselves down. 
to save the lives of others who will be able to step into the life that they believe in, right? That's why we love it. That's why we love it. It's, it's the story of every grand epic adventure that we watch that our culture obsesses over. It doesn't matter what it is, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Marvel. You know, I mean, even Batman versus Superman, as awful of a movie as it was, it was like, what happened? Like, somebody lays down their life and we go, yes! We love that. But it's not just on the big screen. Like, I'll never forget where I was my senior year of college when two planes flew through the Twin Towers on 9-11 in New York City. And I remember being glued to my television and watching these, these people who were literally running the wrong way into the wreckage. Why? To save, laying their life on the line so that others could have life. And many of them, many of them lost their lives. And we see that and we celebrate it, right? What happened? They denied themselves. They walked into pain and suffering on purpose for the sake of other people. You know, I, I've witnessed this being played out in real time um, in several ways over the last four weeks, and I'm gonna share these, and I know some of them are gonna feel hard to associate with. And I hesitated to even share them because I know that we'll hear some of them and we'll go, man, that's so foreign, I don't even know what to do with that, but we have to, we have to hear it. You know, a lot of you know that um, me and a group of seven others went to India at the beginning of September. And the stuff that I saw my brothers and sisters in Jesus doing there, it, it's like a different, they're on a different, they're playing a different sport than we are sometimes. I, I talked to person after person who they gave their life to Jesus and, and they didn't get the Instagram version. It was like suffering came. I, I talked to the t- multiple different guys who, you know, they gave their life to Jesus One of them, it's like a few months later, his wife passes away. His whole family blames him because he abandoned the Hindu deities and began to follow Jesus and they said, it's your fault and they've heaped shame on him. They've ostracized him. They won't let him come into the home anymore. I talked to another man and he gave his life to Jesus and then he led his mom to Christ and then she died a year later. His brother wouldn't let him come to the funeral. His brother said, no, you're out of here. You know, you're not part of our family anymore. You're a disgrace to our family because you have abandoned the gods and it's your fault that she died. And yet sitting there talking with them, the joy, the peace in their life, their, their devotion to Jesus, it's like, what is happening? They've, they've laid down their lives. And for some of you, you get this because you gave your life to Jesus and your family thinks you're crazy or your friends think you're a fanatic. It's like, man, they gave their life to Jesus and suffering came. They took up their cross. They had to deny themselves. And I sat with with a man who prayed blessing on his family, his parents, as they were actively pushing against him and wanting nothing to do with his new marriage, not welcoming his wife into their home. And I sat with him as he prayed to bless his mom and his dad and forgave them. It's like, wow. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. That's the picture. The path sometimes doesn't look like the picture. I think of a way that I've seen this play out in our culture just this week in a story that has grabbed the attention of our nation. I wonder how many of us have been watching um, the, the, the story of Botham John in Dallas and his murder. If you don't know the story, it's heartbreaking. And I, I want to acknowledge on the front end, I, I hesitated even bringing it up because I know, I know how sensitive this is. And I know how many 
how it just affects our culture. It speaks, it's complex. I only want to speak into one aspect of this story, okay? If you don't know the story, Botham John was murdered in cold blood in his own apartment. He's a 27-year-old black man killed in his apartment by a white police officer who'd just gotten off duty. She thought she was coming into her apartment. It was his apartment, and she just shot him. Botham, Botham John was, uh, he was a good man. He actually graduated from the same small Christian university that I went to, and he was known on campus for being a spiritual leader. He led worship in the chapel on campus there, and now he's gone. And so the, the nation has been watching this murder trial because uh, the woman who shot him was arrested. She, she was put in jail and she's been on trial and it's been a very divisive thing. And I don't wanna, you know, there, there's so much involved here, but something happened on Thursday. Botham's younger brother, 18 years old, sits on the witness stand and in this like complicated moment, he, 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 he asks to address the woman who murdered his brother. And he looks at her and he says, I don't want anything bad for your life. He said, I don't want any harm for you. He said, I actually, the only thing I want is what I know my brother would have wanted is for you to give your life to Jesus. He says, I forgive you. And then he says, he looks at the judge, he says, can I hug her? And he, he says, please, can I hug her? He leaves the witness stand and he goes and he embraces his brother's murderer in front of the judge's booth and the, 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 the woman just breaks down sobbing. And now, here's the thing. This one act of Brant Jean, Botham's younger brother, it does not erase, it does not erase the lack of justice. It does not erase the brokenness in our legal system. It does not erase the systemic racism that exists within our nation. But what I want to draw our attention to is this one human being, Brant Jean, this, this one young man who our culture would say, human, human reason, human thinking would say, you have every reason to hang on to bitterness, to hang on to anger, to want revenge against her. You have every reason to cling to that. And yet he denies that. He denies it. He says, I, I, he says no, that's the concerns of humanity. I want to have God's concerns. And he forgives his brother's murderer. He denies himself the right. And he loves her. And like, man, I watched that on Thursday and I knew how big this was for our culture. I knew, but man, just that, that one moment of humanity I was like, wow. Now the question is, how, how does Brant Jean, this 18-year-old man, how does he get there where he's willing to deny himself like that? How do, my friends in India, how do they get to that place where they're willing to deny themselves and, and, and live a life that is filled with suffering for the sake of the gospel? How do they get there? And here's the thing, most of us, most of us will never have the kind of opportunity where we are literally asked to lay down our lives for somebody else, to deny ourselves in such a life-sacrificial way for somebody else to live. Most of us will never have it. But what we like to think is that, man, when that moment comes in my life, I'll be able to get up and just do it heroically because I'll have great courage because that's what Christianity does. It does not happen that way. You don't wake up one morning and suddenly you have the courage to deny yourself for others. You see, the way that you get there the way that you get there is like thousands of little micro denials along your journey every single day, making the choice to deny yourself. Let Jesus be your guide. Surrender to him. Let him be the one to show you who the true you is and lay down your life so that you can walk into the fullness of life with him every day. 
You know, it's like right now I'm training my boys. I have two, I have four kids. My, my two boys are the oldest. They're nine and seven. And I've been working with them. They're at the age where they understand what it looks like to be a self-starter. So I'm trying to train them like, hey, how do you be a self-starter? It means you, you set your alarm in the morning. You don't need me to come wake you up. You get yourself out of bed. You choose to get dressed. You choose to do your morning chores. You choose to spend, I'm trying to get them to spend just 10 minutes in their Bible every morning. And I said, but you have to do it. Now, what does this have to do with self-denial? Well, how many of you have ever had your alarm clock go off in the morning and the last thing you want to do is get out of bed? Oh, I'm just so cozy. <laughs> Snooze, you know, it's like, ah, oh, I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to wake up. The last thing my boys want to do in the morning is get up and do chores that serve our family. I promise. <laughs> and they don't do it perfectly, but they're learning. They're learning. It's these small actions, these little micro denials that we make every day where we learn to say no to ourselves, no to our own cravings and desires for the sake of somebody else. And that is what shapes us, informs us, and brings out the image of God within us. Every single day, for some of you, it, it, it's something different, you know? Like some of you have roommates that drive you crazy, and you have every right by the human wisdom, by human concerns, to want to pay them back, to be passive aggressive, to, to just go off on them in anger. I had a roommate in college. Man, dude was like the hairiest dude you ever met. He would like, he would shave his beard in our sink and then just leave the hair all over the sink, like where my toothbrush was. <laughs> That's gross. You know how many people told me, dude, you need to pile that up and smear it on his pillow. Like I had people tell me all the time. And it was like, I, I, human concerns, I have a right to do that. It, what is it doing? What is it accomplishing? Dude would come in and he's actually one of my best friends now, so it's kind of funny that I'm talking about this. He would come in like, you know, we're broke college students. I would buy a 24 pack of Dr. Thunder from Walmart, you know, and put it in the fridge. And then I'd come back and find half of them been opened and about a quarter of them drank and then left on the counter where they were flat. And I'm like, like, I'd be so mad, you know, like some of you are there right now with your roommates and every part of you wants to pay them back or do something to get them. And Jesus said, hey, will you deny yourself? Will you treat them with kindness? Will you actually seek a way to bless them? in the face of their annoyances. For some of you, it's in your marriage. Some of you are just storing up anger and resentment towards your spouse, your significant other. And Jesus goes, hey, will you deny yourself for them? Will you forgive? Will you seek to serve them? Will you seek to be the one that carries the weight even when they haven't done it all right? For some of you, it's with your kids. For some of you, it's in relationships. For some of you, it's just with time with God. God's like, man, I love you. I just want some time with you. Will you get up a little earlier to be with me, to pray and talk to me and share with me what's on your heart? That's going to require denying yourself every day. Jesus says, listen, listen, I know you. I made you. I've put my image in you. And there is a false self that is going to keep lying to you. And I want to show you how to pull that off. It's going to hurt. It's going to feel like you're losing yourself. It's going to feel like you're dying at times. But if you want to find your life, let me show you how to lay down your life so that you can fully live into what I came to offer. You know, this morning, we're going to come to the table of grace. This whole thing is like Jesus leads us in grace. It's in grace. You, you take the cup, you take the bread, and it's this reminder. It's this reminder. Listen, some of us think that Jesus went to the cross and Jesus suffered so we don't have to. I had a friend say to me this week, he said, no, Jesus went to the cross and he suffered to show us how to. 
so that, so that as you engage suffering, as you engage hardship, we look to Jesus. We remember the way he did it. He, he forgave those who were murdering him from the cross. He prayed blessing on them. He never retaliated. It's like he showed us how to do it. And so as we come to the table of grace this morning, we remember that Jesus led the way in this. But then I also just have some simple questions for you to, to ask one another and to pray about as you take communion. We can put those questions on the screen. Here's what, here's what I'd like for you to think about. One, let's be honest. Where has your life not looked like the picture you imagined? Where has the walk with Jesus not looked like you imagined? You can be honest and tell God about that. Tell each other about it. It's okay. But then the second thing, what are the little micro denials that Jesus is inviting you to make in your life right now? Ask Jesus. Share them with one another and ask him to give you the courage to step into it. Let me pray for us. God, I love you. Jesus, I'm so grateful. You don't invite us into this and then watch from a distance. You stepped right into it and you went first. So Lord, I pray, you know, we, man, in this world, it's just crazy. Like everything's changing. It's moving so fast. It's hard to know up from down, right from wrong sometimes. So Lord, we just say as a church family, we want to be a family that is surrendered to you. You're the guide. Would you reveal the false self, the the, the sinful nature. And Lord, would you, would you pull out of us anything that's not honoring and would you let the, your image in us just shine brightly to each other and to the world around us. Lead us as we commune. Would you show us the things that are not of you? Show us where you're inviting us to deny ourselves. Lead us in grace. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.